Today on Gehuna Akdohien, Voices of 81, we hear from Sheila Dara. Sheila became OC of the prisoners in Armagh jail when the first hunger strike began in 1980. She remained in this position throughout the 1981 hunger strike and reflects here on her memories of that period, the communication that existed between the prisoners in Armagh and Longkesh, and on the strength that those prisoners drew from their communities on the outside. The initial decision for the 1980 hunger strike came after four years of protest in the H-Box Armagh, when the prisoners themselves had realised that this situation could continue for a very long time. Um, there have been prisoners who had served their sentences and been released, and there were prisoners serving very long sentences who had been sitting in that situation for four years. So it was a decision that the, 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 the only other option available to us as prisoners was a hunger strike, uh, because when you're in jail, you have very few options or ways to protest. So the initial hunger strike, there, there were a number of women who put their names forward for the 1980 hunger strike. And the three women who began on the 1st of December 1980 were Maria Farrell, Mary Doyle and Margaret Nugent. And there were already the seven men on hunger strike in the H-Box. We have been receiving uh, information about the condition of the men through comms from coming through the Shinkane Centre and people's visits. So we knew the deterioration in the, the condition of the men, especially Sean McKenna, who was in very, in starting into December, was in a very precarious position. Um, we also knew that there were contacts going on uh, behind the scenes quietly between the Republicans on the outside and the British government. And on the, uh, well, leading up to the end of the hunger strike, I mean, if I can just give you some context of what it was like, the, the three women were moved off our wing. We were still on the no, no wash protest. The three women were moved off the wing over to what they termed the hospital wing on the other side of the circle in the jail. But Marie Farrell insisted that they get their exercise along with us in a ring yard. Um, I had taken over as OC of the prisoners when Marie went on hunger strike. And each time that the three women were brought through a wing to go for for hunger for exercise, Marie would stop myself and have a conversation with me and pass on the information because they were weighed every day and the blood pressure was taken and all of that so that I could send that out to the outside. So we could see, we could physically see the change in their condition. And uh, there's one thing that always stays with me from that time. Always, you know, it's, it's a memory. There are certain memories that you never lose. And the one clear memory that I have, probably because Maria was talking through the spy into my cell, so I was close to the door to hear what she was saying, was a sweet smell of her breath. Um, and it turns out that apparently as the body breaks down, this is uh, high, you know, when the body breaks down through, through lack of food, this is common to someone who's on hunger strike, someone who has had that lack of food. So that's something that always just stayed with me. Um, anyway, then on the 18th of December, the three women were locked in the hospital wing and I was in my cell in in a wing, and I had to smuggle radio, um, all the 
all the presents of various wings and that had had radio smuggled in there, just be tiny things that you could hide very easily. And I was listening to the news on downtown radio because you only put the radio on for the news, it wasn't for entertainment. And there was an announcement made that the hunger strike in Peach Blocks had finished, that Sean McKenna had been rushed to the hospital in a critical condition and that the hunger strike was over. So obviously at that time at night, just hearing news reports, we didn't know what had happened. The three women in the hospital, when they'd heard the same thing in their radios, they didn't know what was happening either. But unbeknownst to me, Danny Morrison had travelled from Belfast and was outside Armagh trying to get in to see me, to tell me what had happened, and they wouldn't let him in. So the following day, the three women were still on the hunger strike. So the hunger strike had ended on the 18th. The three women were still on hunger strike on the 19th. And again, we're being taken over for for exercise. But the, the governor of the prison, Scott, had went into Maraid that morning and said, well, that's it, it's over. And she said, no, sorry, it's not. She says, it's not over until I speak to my OC. So when they brought the three women over, they let Maria come into my cell. And her and I had a, a quick talk about what was going on because all the news, every news then was ending with that the hunger strike in H-blocks had finished, that Sean McKenna was in a critical condition, that apparently there was talk of a document that had come, that the prison protests were ending, and we were none the wiser because we wouldn't let anybody in to see me in our magic. So I didn't know what was going on. Um, so Maria and I, after t- talking about it, we kind of came to the conclusion that it would look to the outside outside world like we had been left out of the loop. Um, and it wasn't a fact that we'd been left out of the loop, it was a fact that we couldn't get the information because the jail just closed out. So we decided that the best thing to do then, so that it wouldn't look that that you know one prison pitted against the other, that the hunger strike then in our mouth would, would end. Um again, Danny Morrison tried to get in to visit me, and again they refused to let him in. So it was, I think it was actually on the 20th of December that I got a visit from a priest. And I'd never had a visit in my, my four years in Arma Jail, I'd never had a visit from a priest. Um, and it turns out anyway that this priest was a man who had been a go-between, one of the people who were trying to liaise between Republicans and the British to bring the prison protest to an end. So he, he came and explained to me about this document that had come from the British government and that the hunger strike in the H-Blacks had been called off because Sean McKenna was very, very close to death, that the prisoners there knew the document was coming and in the hope of saving Sean's life and the document arriving in time that the hunger strike there had ended. So we then sat between December and January and tried to figure out what was going on. Bobby Sands was the OC in the H-Blocks and Bobby was in constant contact with me. Um, People on the outside were in constant contact with me. the document that had come from the British, it wasn't it wasn't entirely what the prisoners would have wanted, but had the British shown any kind of, of flexibility at all, it is a document that could have brought an end to the prison protests. But it became clear very quickly that the British weren't 
going to to interpret the document in any way that would be, that would, would bring the, the situation to an end. At one stage in January, um, it was agreed that one wing in the H-Box would go off to protest, would go into a clean wing, and that their families would bring up their own clothes and parcels. And if these men got their own clothes and their parcels, then that could be the you know, first step towards the, cause, because we were trying to be flexible about it. But uh, prison authorities refused to give them the clothes or the parcels. So they wrecked the wing, they wrecked the clean wing that they'd been put on. And I have a letter, I still have it to this day, that was written by Sean McVeigh, who died a few years ago. He's an uncle of, of uh, Nal Donia, the Shanador. But Sean was in constant contact with me and he was telling me, he, he described in this letter, because one of the men on that wing was Teddy Crane, who was also from our area, uh, another good friend of mine who now lives in Dunfutter. Um, He was explaining how these men were beaten, that they were run through a gauntlet of screws and they were thrown into uh, a wing that Sean and, and his comrades had just been taken out of that were, had been homestarting, they were wet, they were cold, they were covered in excreta, and the men were thrown into that. And because they were in the same H-block, they could hear all of this, they could hear what was happening. He described how um, Eddie Brophy had taken a heart, heart attack and Skin Digny had got a broken arm. And then he described that the, the men in the wings started singing, obviously to keep their morale up and that they could hear the songs floating across the exercise yard. So that's the type of thing, that's kind of the situation that, that we were in, and that's the kind of the contact that we always had with, with the box, and, and that's, you know, that's the kind of closeness of the prisoners that you knew what was going on. So, as I said, within a very short space of time, we realised that the, the Brits weren't going to move. Um, there was already talk of the second bunker strike. And the talk began again in Armagio. But unfortunately, um, we're in the hate box. There were, there were over 400 men in the hate box at the height of the prison protest in Armagio. There were only 32 of us. Um, it was during the time of what they called Castle Ray in Vegarville, where people were arrested, interrogated, beaten, signed statements, sentenced in diplomat courts. So there were, there were women in there who actually were sentenced to things that they didn't do, that had signed statements. I mean, you couldn't expect someone like that to go on a hunger strike. Um, there were others who were serving short sentences. So we had a very small group of people that would have been capable of hunger strike. The three women who had been on the first hunger strike weren't capable either physically or mentally to, to go on to the second one. Although the three of them had come forward and put their names forward again for the second hunger strike. But I think as, as the days and time went on and they thought about it, I think they knew themselves that they couldn't have done it. Um, the thing about it is that hunger strike is it's it's not something that you could say, oh, you know, I'll try it for a few days and sure, you know, if it doesn't work, I'll come off it. It doesn't work like that. Not not when, you know, the stakes were so high. And the stakes in terms of prisons were so high, not just in, in the position for the prisoners, because 
this was a complete policy. This was a British government policy that if they could break the prisoners, criminalize us, and criminalize what we were in jail for, in turn that criminalized our communities, in turn that criminalized our struggle. That said to the world that we were, you know, what they were trying to make out was that we were just gangsters, that we were just, you know, we had our community living in terror when the fact of the matter was that without our communities behind us, we would never have survived. You can't have a guerrilla struggle if you don't have the community there on your behalf. Um, but it was basically to, to put across that Irish republicanism had no rang or reason or right and that was not how it was and I mean even in terms of people who were Irish Republicans it's not that you get up one morning and said you know what I think I'll go out and do such and such A, B, C or D there you know there's always reasons why people do the things that they do and the prison the prison struggle the prison uh, protests even from internment it actually republicanized, I think, thousands more people than whatever. I mean, the, the, the Brits were basically defeating them on purpose through every policy that they had carried out here in Ireland. Um, so that was the context of, of the prison protests. That was the context of what was going on. But anyway, in Armagh, when it came to the second hunger strike, unfortunately, we didn't have any... Any anyone to fall back on, any volunteer to go forward for the hunger strike. Um, and the second time around, or the first time, there were seven men in the H-box and three women in Armagh, and they could kind of lean on each other. Uh, Bobby Sands had stated that he would embark on his own, so there was no pressure on anyone else to either, you know, continue a hunger strike that they couldn't do, or to go on a hunger strike that they couldn't do, or to, to be looking out for him. So that's what happened. Then Bobby began his hunger strike on the first of March, and as I said, you know, it's it's not that we felt that he was twenty or thirty miles away from us. It felt as if the H blocks were as close to us as someone across the wing in another cell, because there were so many women that knew personally, knew, knew people who who went on hunger strike, people who followed Bobby onto the hunger strike, who knew. People in the H box. I mean, I was getting letters from somebody in the next cell to Bobby. Um, when Patty Crew went on it, my cellmate Eileen Morgan, she was from the same area. She knew Patty very well. She had been getting letter, or letters from Patty Crew. When Raymond Crew went on it, Patty, I think, was Raymond's cellmate. So he was telling Patty about Raymond, you know. So it wasn't that I know, and I don't mean this to sound. Facetious in the understanding. I mean, um, if people see the hunger strikers and they see photographs of these young men and they see posters, and because it's it's now a part of history because it's 40 years ago, and I have to understand that that to, to people who were the age that I was in jail, it's history. To us, it wasn't history. It was they weren't uh, photographs and they weren't posters. There were people we knew. There were people we cared about. There were comrades, were friends. Um, uh, and so it did have in in a, in a you knew what you were there for politically, but in a personal way, it it did have an impact. 